In terms of the old world, evolution existed for sure, but as an explanation of human origins? Of one thing becoming wholly another? As one nature being wholly changed into another nature? No, no, no. And welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast. It's aimed at people maybe who are looking around thinking, yeah, there's a lot of crap going on and I feel a little dislocated, a little discombobulated. This is Watar. Why are we talking about rabbits? Rabbits are those things that keep reproducing on the interweb. People chase after them, but they, you know, they're just going to reproduce again. And they don't have deep, profound meaning. We look at heavy things, but we do it lightly. Cultural phenomenons are a thing, but also philosophy, theology. Many years spent deeply immersed in foreign cultures is how we came to these conclusions about life. And we're going to share them with you because we're First Things Foundation. My name's John Hears. This is why we're we talking about rabbits. This is episode 44. And this is a part two of a part one that was last week. Part two is evolution, the light people creation story. So, this evolution thing. Before we get into the history uh, and try to walk around a little bit and figure out like where evolution came from, how this new world idea, like what part of the old world did it come from, if at all? I just had a subscriber, thank you subscriber, I had a subscriber send me a link about an article about evolution in Africa, and it's so juicy that I need to start with it. Yeah, it's an article from The Guardian, that's an English production. In this article, which you can find in the pod notes, The Guardian writes, quote, scientists are stunned that Kenyan evangelicals want to deny space for an exhibit that prominently displays the bones of Australopithecus and Amensis, and also Narakatatoma boy, Narakatatoma boy, two very rare examples of what many people call evidence of human evolution from ape variations, unquote. So the Guardian is saying, hey man, apparently there's some skeletons that Kenyans, at least some Kenyans, we don't know how many, don't want to be displayed in their national museum, right, in Nairobi. Apparently these are like eight, 1.8 million year old, well, not a Karatomi boy is, he's 1.8 million years old. He's human apparently though, he's not a link by the way, he's just like a really old human. And the Kenyans are like, nah, we're good, thanks. At least some Kenyans are. And if you think about it, it's a pretty ironic thing, this whole story. Europeans want Africans to display ancient humans as a part of an evolution exhibit that explains where Africans came from. Right? Meanwhile, Kenya and the whole idea, right, the whole of East Africa, including Ethiopia, is home to some of the oldest Christian traditions in the world, including their really old creation story. You know, Adam, Eve. Like, they already think they know where they came from. Remember, there was an Ethiopian in the Bible. Lots of them, actually. Moses had a wife. Then that Ethiopian on the road is like, hey, Jesus, make me one of yours. Yeah, apparently the EU would like Africans to knock it all off and just do evolution stuff. 
Here's what the bishop said in the article. Quote, this is confusing. Our children, and it's killing our faith. When children go to the museum, they'll start believing we evolved from apes. Yes, that's right. Africans, Kenyans in this case, don't want the light people, the reasonable northerners, to once again lump them in with, that's right, apes. Didn't didn't Europeans get the message the first time they tried this? But let's be fair to the light people of Europe for a second, and of America. What do they actually say about, like, you know, evolution. And what are they saying about the Africans, not all of them, but a lot of them who are saying, don't put that stuff in our museum. Well, listen in the same article as we hear from Richard Leakey. That's the son of the fabled bone hunter, Louis Leakey. Richard Leakey is tired of Africans getting in the way of progress. Quote, the African church is being ridiculous. Unquote. And then he continued, quote, This is scientific stuff. It's history. Evolution theory is accepted across the world. Unquote. Well, apparently it's not like all the way across the world. Apparently <laughs> whole swaths of Africans are getting used to the idea that they came from, yeah, apes or not. They're not quite there yet. Richard, and should they be, you know, maybe they don't want another colonial idea being forced on them by really smart people from light countries. Maybe, maybe we should just chill about that. I mean, even if you're going to do this and say Christianity, John, is a light person's religion, it was imported to Africa, which it wasn't. I don't know. Go to a map. Look up these early locations. The earliest location is Christianity. Palestine, Antioch, not in Europe. Alexandria, Africa. Oh, wait a minute. Ethiopia, Africa. Armenia, not Europe. But even if you go down the road, right, of Christianity as an imported European thing, won't you still just end up forcing evolution, the light people creation story, onto, say, like, Local African creation stories, like really, really old ones, like pre-Ethiopian on-the-road stories, won't you just end up irritating local Kikuyu priests by destroying, say, their narrative, the one that says a creator god made a man named Gikuyu and a woman named Mumbi who lived at the foot of Mount Kenya? That's a fact. That is their creation story. It's how it starts. Won't you just end up displacing that story, which sounds eerily similar to the one that black people called Kenyans want to display in their own African museum called National? I mean, Richard Leakey, really? You can just hear him. Why won't they just, why won't those Africans just do what I tell them to do? Yeah, kind of makes me insane. And that leads me to the rest of the podcast, which is all about, well, 
the world that actually did accept the light people creation story. That'd be our world if you're listening in North America or Europe. Today, we're going to chat a bit about how, how we did it. Want to take a look and figure out how this evolution thing became a thing? Right here in our own backyard? Well, in the European backyard that becomes America? Let's do it. First things first. Evolution has always been around in the minds of humans, evolved humans anyway, whatever that is. Change is obvious. Variation is obvious. It happens. People always have noticed that. Take a look at Plato. Take a look at Aristotle. Both of them ascend to something called natural hierarchy. They rank animals and associate them. They associate human beings. It's a natural thing to say, hey, look, that thing looks like that. It may have changed, right? Aristotle wrote the history of animals. And in it, he ranks animals and plants. And to rank is to associate. So Aristotle's ideas would be picked up in earnest in time by the scholastically minded Roman Catholic theologians of the Middle Ages. Eventually, these Middle Ages folks, these Roman Catholics or Catholics, well, basically, they would come up with something that in Latin is called the Scala Natura. So if you listen to St. Albertus Magnus, he's from the 13th century, the Catholic saint, he talks about how the Scala Natura works, which is based on, right, schema from Aristotle's history of animals. Here's what Albertus Magnus says, nature does not make animal kinds separate without making something intermediate between them. For nature does not pass from extreme to extreme without something between. Mm. This would become known and actually became cited as a law by Darwin some 600 years later. And that law that Darwin cites, he calls the law of continuity. The scholastic theologians of Rome loved them some laws, and they applied them often to all the theology that had gone before in Christian tradition for a thousand years. They were trying to rationalize, to some degree, the theology, things like, hey, was Christ God or is Christ man? How does that work? Is he both at the same time? They're trying to rationalize some of that. And you can hear it in how they try to use Aristotle to make sense of the natural world. Well, here's another one, Nicholas of Cusa. Nicholas of Cusa. Here's what he says. All things, however different, are linked together. Such an order demands that the highest species of one genus coincides with the lowest of the next higher genus in order that the universe may be one. Perfect, continuous, Scala. Scale. So these ideas become a type of naturalistic explanation for the physical world within the Roman Catholic world view. And then, as Protestant Reformation gets rolling and Descartes starting to do his mind-bending, sit-in-the-house, somersault thing where he isolates himself and thinks hard and uses his reason, Enlightenment thinkers begin to borrow from this Western Christian lineage of ideas. They borrow, right, from Aristotle. And then Aquinas borrows from Augustine. And basically, they're all sort of using this template that God has created 
a natural order. But then come along folks who are starting to become deists. People are starting to say, yeah, God, okay, eh, probably first mover. He's out there, far away. Let's talk about reality. Here's Gottfried William Leibniz. He's writing in the 1690s. He's going to start to use words like radiation and links and chains and missing links. Here's what he says. All the different classes of beings which taken together make up the universe are so closely united that it would be impossible to place a transitory thing between any two of them. Since that would imply disorder and imperfection. Thus, men are linked with animals. Men are linked with plants and the fossils which in turn merge with those bodies which our senses call inanimate, like rocks and stones. Whoa, 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 unquote. This naturalist, deist character is starting, wow, the European notion that it's all linked. Even the inanimate things, ha-ha. Much like the mud, right? that God made Adam out of, if you're one of those cats from the old world to believe that weird stuff. Guess what? The inanimate starting to be tied in, but with God far away in the deist tradition. It's getting interesting. Let's keep going. But first, let's have a quick word from one of our sponsors, Health and Help. Health and Help. It's one of our besties at First Things Foundation. We love them. We worked with them overseas. And what do they do? Health and Help is a nonprofit that builds clinics to provide care for patients of every nationality, every faith, and every sexual orientation. They're equal, equal opportunity health providers. And they do it in very faraway places where there is no health clinic or health provider at all. So health and health patients receive the necessary medical treatment regardless of their ability to pay for it. Every person in health and health, every doctor who signs on to volunteer for two, three, four, five, six months, they know and they understand their mission to become much better people by providing much better health services. First Things Foundation, that's us. We've worked with them. We've seen them. We advocate that you go to Facebook or head over to the Google machine and find them online and support Health and Help. And now, back to our pod. So, we're making our way through Western history a bit, trying to find out how evolution becomes a thing. And you know, like a science thing, not just a thing, not just a set of ideas, but a science thing. Yeah. How does evolution affect Western light people, which includes your kid and mine and likely you and your dinner pals. And you get it, what I'm saying. It affects us. So what is it? And where did it come from? To understand how evolution is less about science and more about philosophy, let's take the next step and find out about a crew of what I'm going to call ne'er-do-wells. There's an old-fashioned term, ne'er-do-wells. He's a ne'er-do-well. These cats, I don't really know if they're ne'er-do-wells. I mean... They might have done well things, good things, but 
They were a secret society, so nobody really knew, and they called themselves the Rosacrans, the Rosicrucians. And the Rosicrucians were around in the late 1600s, early 1700s, and they may still be around. They're a secret society, after all. And you know what? They peddled some pretty interesting philosophy. If you like Shakespeare, you might recognize that Rosicrucian word. And if you like bacon, you'll realize that a guy named Francis Bacon was a prime aficionado. He was a Rosicrancian, Rosicrucian. And he was also the one who founded and pushed and preached the scientific method. That was his baby. And what did these Rosicrucians teach using Bacon's new science? Here's a quote from a guy, Carl Lindgren, who wrote a book called The Way of the Rosy Cross. He says, quote, The Rosicrucians provided insight into nature, the physical universe, by teaching that humans are spirits attending the school of life for the purpose of unfolding latent spiritual power, developing themselves from impotence to omnipotence reaching the stage of creative gods at the end of mankind's present evolution. Whoa. Do you know what the end of mankind's present evolution is? Something called by the Rosicrucians the Great Day of Manifestation. That's right. Woo, there's a lot there. The Rosicrucians, what the heck they got to do anything? Well, Francis Bacon, the guy who sends people to the New World, to do science, he's one of them. And he's waiting for the great day of manifestation. Now that feels kind of evolutionary. Right? What is it though? Is it like heaven for evolutionary thinkers? It's it's like a deity? It's like a little God for, it's like a little heaven? What is it? Is it like Elon Musk's vision for mankind? Here's a clip from Wikipedia on the great manifestation. The day of manifestation is when a certain collective great being limits himself to a certain portion of space in which he elects elects to create a solar system for the evolution of added self-consciousness. What? God's gonna like let you use a cubbyhole to get more self-consciousness. These light people, man, they're a trip. That's that's nutty. Or is it? Or is it just philosophy? Is it taking an idea, logically twisting it out, and creating all kinds of rational reasons to believe in something? Hmm. Don't we need some evidence? Isn't that what scientists do? Well, not so far. Right? Now... Next up, let's talk about Diderot for a second. Circa 1770. That's Diderot, the Frenchman who created the Encyclopedia. You know, the guy that wants to put all of human knowledge in one place. That guy. Good luck with that, by the way. Diderot is an early advocate, maybe even the guy who created the scientific concept of epigenesis himself. Epigenesis. There it is. Epigenesis, what the heck? Here's what he writes. The notion is that living beings are formed in the womb by the gradual layering of material substance without any preformed information or soul. What? 
Living beings are formed in the womb without any in preformed information or soul. They're just banged out. Well, I shouldn't have said it like that. They're big banged out. They're they just they just in the womb. They just happen. Yeah, epigenesis. As the Stanford Philosophy Encyclopedia tells us, Diderot had an admiration for the metaphysics of a single substance composed of an infinite number of modes. Whoa, a single substance, many modes. Like the man molecule that Jerry Coyne, the evolutionist uh, theorist, the biologist from last week's podcast, like the man molecule, the molecule that started it all. Wait a minute, but Diderot's like 400 years earlier. What? Diderot ends, there is only one substance in the universe. What? Yeah, so the encyclopedia guy loves information and is now saying that all of it, all the information is connected, all the stuff is connected. And it's obviously connected by God? No. That was the old story. The new story is emerging. It's connected by what he's going to go on to call consciousness, which is very interesting because that's what a lot of new world people today like to say is happening, consciousness. Isn't it interesting that the earliest philosophers, enlightenment philosophers, are talking about things that have come to be true and they presented them as true even before there was evidence. Hmm. Let's keep going. George Hegel is next on our list. Hegel, of course, is Hegelian dialectics. Hegel is the guy who's going to take the same concepts and whoops, switch them over and try to analyze history using the same concept of evolutionary continuance. Hegel, right, the precursor to Karl Marx's fame. Marx loved that guy. Well, he loves evolution, right? He actually does write down the word epigenesis. He and a philosopher, Scheller, Schelling, sorry, Frederick Schelling, they, they write down and actually talk about epigenesis as a way to explain how history works. What they're saying is layers upon layers upon layers of new realities, new activities come into being. And as they come into being, the first reality is something like a thesis, and the second reality is something like an antithesis, and then the third reality is the synthesis of the two, which is a brand new, brand new, brand new thesis. Like going from Nakatakarami boy to me. New. Not human anymore. New. Right? Something new. Hegel loves this stuff, right? We're getting closer to Charles Darwin. Hegel's writing in the 1700s into the 18, early 1800s. But before we get to the big guy, Charles Darwin, we need to visit a crew called the Lunar Society of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I did not make that up. It's the Lunar Society of Birmingham, not Alabama. This is England. Well, the Birmingham Lunar Crew was a core of science enthusiasts and philosophers who basically set out to advance Enlightenment ideals in England. Every country in England, I mean, in Europe, had this kind of like enlightenment, like down home crew that was fighting against the powers that be, mostly the Catholic Church, to to 
to teach about Enlightenment ideals. England had it too. Well, in Birmingham, they were called the Birmingham Lunar Crew, well, or society. So they're a crew crew of elites and philosophers who push lots of ideas that included really interesting ideas about, say, the steam engine. Well, Matthew Bolton was a leading industrialist. He was one of the main members of the Lunar Crew. And he was a guy who owned the Soho Ironworks of England, right? Soho, right? And so very famous, very famous guy. And he's the guy who happens to have financed James Watts's famous invention called the steam engine. Oh, also James Watt? Yeah, a member of the Lunar Crew. They were buddies. Mm-hmm. So it was Joseph Priestley who discovered, if you're a science person out there, oxygen, which is kind of funny that he discovered oxygen. Feels like it had already been around. So... There's other famous people, too, in this crew, including a guy named Thomas Day. And he's probably my my favorite because he's pretty much the wackiest. He's he's like like the guy on Seinfeld if he was mean. Kramer. He's Kramer if he was mean. Like mean Kramer. If you're young and you don't know that, go watch Seinfeld. Thomas Day is mean Kramer, and he became well-known when he decided that his marriage was going to be a science experiment, his own marriage. Thomas Day actually went to an orphanage and adopted a 12-year-old girl named Sabrina, and he began training her in what he called the Enlightenment arts, things like reading and writing. And all of this was aimed at making her what he called his Spartan wife, And he wanted her to be what he knew she could become, which was equal to him. Thomas Day doesn't stop there. So in order to prove this to the outside world that he, and he was actually doing like notes on this and schemas and he was drawing diagrams and he had it all planned out and he was observational. Oh, there's an idea. And he was going to repeat it and then give it to people so they could repeat it for their own wives. And here's the thing. All this wifing had experimental realities. Like for one, he would fire blank pistols at his wife. Yeah. To scare her, to make her tough. He would drop hot wax on her so that he could, quote, allow her to become stoical and, quote, inure her to pain. (laughs) That's nice of him. He would also make her run with heavy objects up and down the English hills and from time to time would take her on muddy walks in the fresh air, regardless of rain or shine, ensuring, in his words, that, quote, she would one day become able to understand every species of employment. (laughs) I'm not making this up, okay? He was a member of the Lunar Crew of Birmingham. But guess who else was? Guess who was actually the leader of it? That's right, Erasmus Darwin. No, not Charles. Charles isn't born yet. Erasmus Darwin. That would be Charles Darwin's grandfather. Yeah. That's right, a group of men bonded together in the late 18th century, calling themselves children of the Enlightenment and doing experiments on everything, including wifing, had as one of its seminal members, the grandfather of Charles Darwin. And what does the grandpa of Charles Darwin teach at the time? I shall read directly from one of his writings. Quote, 
that in the great length of time since the earth began to exist, warm-blooded animals have arisen from one living filament. Wait, wait, wait. That's Darwin? Correct. But which one? It's Grandpa Darwin. Here's some more Grandpa Darwin. This is like a hundred years before his grandson would tell the world of all of his experimental realities called evolution. Here we go. Grandpa Darwin. Quote, first appearing deep in the ocean, living organisms gradually grew larger, acquiring new forms and functions until whales governed the seas, lions the land, and eagles the air. Human beings appeared last, the culmination of continuous development. Related to lowly worms, sure, as well as to apes. Thanks, Grandpa Darwin. Yeah, you're listening to Darwin writing in 1794, 15 years before he was born. I could keep going on this stuff, but the fact of the matter, well, I would say this, the fact of this matter that I'm trying to show you is the notion that human beings evolving isn't something that was proved suddenly by experimentation done by good old-fashioned scientists just looking at data, doing observation, and testing things. Uh-uh. No, it was delivered in a philosophy book written by a guy fully imbibing enlightenment deism and rationalism and a dude who wrote a book called On the Origin of Species that actually is a philosophy book. Yeah. And that book was received in time by a people, by us Westerners, who, when we were fully ready to accept it, fully ready to accept its rationalistic worldview, ate it up. And how could we do that? How could we just eat up this thing called evolution? Well, we had been fully divested of our noetic narrative logos-driven worldview by that point. When we Westerners were ready to jettison our fully human, fully divine anthropology, a.k.a. our irrational worldview, Darwin was ready to deliver his creation story. It took two to tango. And man, I think you could argue we needed it. No culture can exist without one of these stories. Just like it's weird, very few human beings do well when every night they go to bed asking, who the hell are my parents? Cultures, they can't survive being orphaned. It's disconcerting. It's not an easy way to live, being an orphan. You know, having to wake up every day and wonder if the leaky families is going to find, you know, find your mom's bones in the Olduvai Gorge. Sure would be nice if I could know who my parents are, Leakies. I hope the Leaky family will find them for us. Most people rebel against being orphaned. It's a hard way to go, guys. And well, something tells me when you look around today, you're seeing a culture in rebellion. We're angry orphans in search of some meaning, namely some parents. You're seeing orphans all pissed off. Like a teenager, we're waking up and saying, you know what, I'm pretty much done with living here. It's not my home. Yet, for Darwin and the Birmingham Lunar Society crew, 
and a whole line of creative thinkers just like them that we call, quote, enlightened orphans were determined. They were determined to make. Yes, orphans they would make. After all, what were they supposed to do? The data proved it. The data proved it. Or did it really? Is evolution a real thing when you put the principles of science in play, verifiable by observation? Can we see one species become another? Is it verifiable by repetition? Can we repeat the experiment of evolution? Can we repeat Darwin's idea that the bear became a whale? As we talked about last week. Hmm. I think we can do some logic. I think we can use our reason for sure and say, yeah, probably. I mean, the fins could have been legs and all of that. But really? Science? Like observable and repeatable? I think that that conversation... Well, that's a big one. It's really for another podcast, or maybe not at all. I don't, I don't think it's for another podcast. I don't really want to argue about evolution. I'm not really here to do that. What I'm trying to show is the antecedents of evolution go way back and sound way more like philosophy than like hard science. In terms of the old world, evolution existed for sure, but as an explanation of human origins of one thing becoming wholly another, as one nature being wholly changed into another nature? No, 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 no. No. No, that's, that's a new world thing. Like, fundamentally a break. Yeah, the question for ancients wasn't really about so much where they came from. It was important. But it was really about where they were going. In that sense, right, Man's time on earth was evolutionary. It was how would you evolve towards your spiritual end? Like, would you become deified? Would you go through purification, illumination, and deification? Would you go through the process of change that, well, would make your father happy? Yeah, that's kind of the old world concept, right? That's the spiritual presupposition of the old world. There's a God. Try to be like your God. Try to be pleasing to your God, to your father, to your mother, to your parents. And who are those again in the evolutionary story? It's a, it's a man molecule, self-replicating, apparently. Yeah, I know, I sound like a jerk. I don't know. What makes Darwinian evolution so new world is that Charles's human evolving concept somehow doesn't include a creator. And that's the big difference. And that's sort of what, what separates deep down, right, the old world from the new in many ways. It might be the chief characteristic of this entire podcast. It might be the thing. But of course, it's gotten confused because, see, many old worlders, people like, I don't know, Catholic priests named Teilhard de Chardin, they have fully clinged on to, and I don't know, how should we say it? They've foisted themselves upon us as evolutionists while also remaining, their Catholic, remaining Catholic. 
They've fused the two ideas together. In fact, the Pope has done that, to be fair. And by the way, a lot of people have done that because here's the thing. Darwin might be right. Reason tells us these things are possible. But scientific evidence? Yeah, no. It's logic. It's logic that twines all these different ideas together. I'm cool with that. But reason, right, does not reality make. Just because something's rational doesn't make it real. Just because something is rational doesn't make it the truth. So I get what evolutionists are doing. They're telling a good story that's logical. But is it actually from logos? Hmm. I guess that's for all of us to figure out. So why don't you write a comment? Let's do it. Write some comments. Get this baby going. I don't know. In the end, maybe evolution is just a disposition. Like it's a way of thinking, a disposition. Like a wind-up car. You wind it up, you wind it up, and you let it go. It can't turn. Have you ever noticed that? It just has a disposition. It has a direction. Maybe evolutionary thinking is a disposition. And people have it and have been imbued with it. And then they go a certain direction. And maybe we're all going in that direction. But maybe we shouldn't. Because maybe we're not wind-up cars. Maybe we have, I don't know, I like this word, it's used a lot, agency. Just know that no matter what, we at First Things are saying to you, Shenny's Gagi Marjos, that means to you the victory. It's often said at the KP table, the Supra, which is a Georgian feast. We do those, we do those for people to go out and raise funds or to raise awareness, but we also do that when we bring someone on to go overseas. They're fun, they're great, they're old world, they're wonderful. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos. And our pod tonight is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. That's us. We send folks to live for two years in tough circumstances so that they might serve others. And in the meantime, serve their little soulful selves that's first thing foundation join us hit us up on reviews with itunes do all that stuff and until next time nakvamdis hasta luego kambufo and peace out